rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. My name is Bob Hutchins. I'm sitting in the studio here just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm talking to a friend across the pond, as it were. I'm talking to Mr. Phil Drysdale. He is in England and the Great Britain, the mother country. Uh, I'm ex- very excited about this conversation. Uh, I think you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, Phil is a speaker, he's an author, and he's dedicated to helping people who are losing their faith. Uh, in Christianity, not necessarily losing their faith in Jesus. His simple message is that God looks like Jesus, and so do you. He creates free video courses helping people to redefine their faith, uh, and you can learn more about it on at thegracecourse.com. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. I'm honestly really privileged. <laughs> hey, that's awesome, man. Well, um, I'm privileged to speak with you. I, I discovered you, as you know, through your Instagram account. I kept seeing this guy right. po- pop up these the, these things on Instagram and these these kind of quotes and these thoughts, and I'm like, wow. Every time I saw him, I'm like, wow. Um, another one would come up another day, and <laughs> I'm like, who's this? Who is this guy? And uh, so you know, a few months That's have gone funny. by, and as I've, I've kind of developed the podcast, and we've had different guests, you keep coming to mind. So uh, tell me, who is Phil Drysdale? Well, first of all, I'm honored that you, um, you know me for my quotes. I, I thought in any way, shape, or form they were, they were great. Because most people know me for my uh, my stupid memes that I do on Instagram. If you follow yeah. me on Instagram, that's usually what I'm well known for. So, yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm surprised that that wasn't what stood out for you. So. Well, that, those are great too. But uh, but but actually, your own quotes and some of the things that the, some of the questions you pose, um, and I know we're going to get into that later on in the podcast yeah. here. But um, you're in England, and uh, how long have you been doing uh, the Grace Course and, and kind of this kind of virtual conversation? I don't know. If, would you call it a ministry? I don't know. I, I don't want to use canned terms, but. <laughs> it's kind of unavoidable, isn't it? Um, you know, I've been um, doing some form of what many would call ministry for quite a while now, uh, um, probably coming up for 10 years, maybe. Um, however, it's evolved and, and taken different shape. I used to do a lot on the kind of charismatic um, speaking circuit kind of scene. I'd go to hundreds of churches a year. It was like intense, just nonstop living in planes, going to conferences, going to churches. And honestly, never really liked that. I, I'm not a big person for uh, church, to be honest with you. My, what I do is really geared around my own journey in some ways and helping people that are going through something that I've been through. Um, but now I, I do, I spend a lot more time, uh, at home doing online stuff. Um, I'm a lot more based in Manchester, whereas before I was constantly on the move on the go and, um, I didn't enjoy that as much. It's nice to travel, but it's not so nice when you get picked up from an airport, you go straight into a church service, you spend the entire weekend in church services and then you go straight back to the airport, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So are you, yeah. you're in Manchester there? Are you a, are you a Man U fan? Do you know what? I used to be really big into football um, when I was younger, and uh, and then I moved to America when I was about twenty-three, and I lived there for about four years, and it was hard to follow football in America. Like you know, the, the time difference, you had to have special TV channels, and so I just stopped watching. And I realized I saved hours and hours and hours a week not following every footballer and the teams and the games, and so I just never picked it back up. Mm. So. Mm. Um, I, I used to be really into football, and, uh, and now I'm kind of like uh, scared to watch any games in case I get the bug again. To be honest <laughs> with you, uh, so. that's but awesome. I, I live like you know a couple of miles from uh, Man United's ground, so uh, I see plenty of uh, fans. And our neighbors are huge Man City fans, so you know when there's uh, games on because you can hear them and all their friends screaming and yelling at their TV, and so uh, <laughs> or at least you know when Man City are doing well. Uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, um, over yeah. here in the States, we call that soccer. So just a reminder, it's not football. Yeah. 
<laughs> Sorry. And you know what? When I was in the States, I got into football. It was, it was great. It was, it was a good cultural exchange for me. So That's awesome. Uh, but I don't really follow that here and now either. So. <laughs> so tell me, Phil, a little bit yeah. about your growing up and background. How, how did you arrive at, at where you are today? I know you have a wife there in Manchester, and um, you guys live, live, live there in Great Britain. How did you uh, end up kind of doing this online? Is this what you do full-time? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah this is all I do. So okay. <laughs> it feels okay. like it's all I do all the time. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, well, I, I, I moved around a lot as a kid because my dad was a, a Baptist pastor. Now, to your American audience in the UK and the rest of the world, Baptist doesn't necessarily mean what you immediately think of. Um, so in, in much of the world, there's a lot more nuance in denominations. So a Baptist could be a charismatic, um, mm. which my dad was. Um, whereas, you know, you're very rarely going to find a charismatic Baptist in America. You know, the denominations are a lot more kind of clear cut. Right. Um, and so um, we grew up in the Baptist uh, movement. Uh, my dad was charismatic, which was fine in most of the churches he was in, but he was also a really big evangelist. He'd go out and he'd save the, the town prostitute or this guy who had an affair four years ago and got kicked out of the church. He'd go out and talk to him and he'd bring him back to church. And, and the churches were the biggest fan of uh, all these people coming in, which is, you know, it's so funny, isn't it? But it's yeah. anyone that's spent enough time around church probably knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, and so we'd move around a lot because eventually the church would go, you know what, we don't like all this change. We don't like you bringing in that type of person. We want this type of person. Mm. And so I got a really bad taste in my mouth, uh, kind of just experiencing the churches that my dad was a pastor off, like going, well, the faith that my parents have is great, but how it plays out and all these people just doesn't seem to translate, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just was a weird environment to grow up in. And we probably grew up in about seven or eight churches before um, my, my dad left uh, working in church ministry and went and worked in like a chaplaincy. And that meant we could go to our own church. Uh, finally, you know, my dad could pick a church rather than, you know, the church pick him. And so we went to this big thriving youth group. that was a, hundred people, which is huge in the UK. I mean, that's a mega church in the UK, just a church that's a hundred people, never mind a youth group. Yeah. So going to that youth group, just, I, I suddenly found a Christianity that was relevant to me. Do you know what I mean? Like suddenly it wasn't just old people in the church complaining about the pastor. It was people my own age who were passionate and excited. And it was a very conservative, um, quite fundamental at times church. But when you've got people that are your own age, when you've got some hot girls, you know, I was like 15, 16 at this time. So, I mean, that was really the only reason I wanted to go to church anyway, let's be honest. Sure. Um, I've been so there. I, I just dove in 100% and, and really loved it. Um, and it wasn't for probably another eight, nine years that I started to ask questions. And um, I started to ask myself a lot more questions about, well, is God really, you know, just this reading the book, praying every day, or can he tangibly interact with our lives? Can he change things? Can he impact things? Can he heal things like these things that I read in the Bible? And that really opened up a whole world for me. I ended up going to study uh, at ministry school in America. I spent four years there. I worked um, uh, with with them on their with their network of churches and got very involved and eventually started traveling and speaking in charismatic churches all over the world. Uh, it was really quite a whirlwind kind of experience. And I was very reluctant to do it because of my experience with my dad being in ministry just mm. wasn't positive. Right. Um, but in the mix of that, um, I, I, you know, I, I had got married. Um, we were relatively happily married. Um, but my wife decided she just didn't know uh, what she believed. Um, she kind of uh, went on a bit of a journey of not knowing where she was at. She didn't want to do traveling with me. She wanted to do her own thing. She kind of got... Um, a little bit uh, depressed even. Mm. Um, and ultimately she made a decision. She says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that's quite a shock. I kind of knew it was coming, but at the same time, it's one of those things you're never really prepared for. Um, and she made that decision to not work on it, not be invested in it. I went to marriage counseling on my own. I think I'm the only person that's ever done that. <laughs> and, and it was amazing. It was really helpful and, and, and challenging and, and insightful. Um, but unfortunately, when you're the only person going to the marriage counseling, it's not really going to do much uh, mm. for the other person um, other than give them a better person to be married to. Um, and, and that basically ultimately fell apart. Uh, it didn't, didn't work out. You know, you can't make a marriage work if there's only one person interested in being married. Um, and so I ended up moving um, back to the UK, being based here. Um, 
and that really started a process for me. I, I you know, in the process of, of my wife um, kind of distancing herself with me and ultimately divorcing, in that time, I really started to question a lot of the charismatic rhetoric. You know, the, the charismatic rhetoric is God is good. He only wants good for you. Um, and it will always come about as long as you tick these boxes. You know, you're, you're holy, you're sexually pure, you, uh, you know, you pray all the time, you read the Bible, you pursue him, you're passionate, all these kind of like, uh, different tick boxes that, that they would have. And it's quite common in a lot of, uh, evangelical Christianity probably as well. Um, but it didn't seem to work for me. You know, I was, mm. I was the poster child, you know, I was traveling around the world telling people this and, and showing like, you know, like, Hey, here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. Um, and yet life wasn't so great. I was really devastated i mean really devastated as i'm sure most people would be if their marriage fell apart um but uh you know it, how, it really how old, do you mind do you mind me asking how old you were at this time yeah uh it's a great question 28 mm-hmm. maybe i think give or take 20 28 maybe turning okay. 29 okay. coming up for 29 i'm um, so still really young you know i mean i got married when i was about 25 i think mm. um so I'm quite late for most Christians, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, uh, it, it was a real, it kind of turned things upside down for me. And, and mm. I started to look at things more deeply. I started to read the, back, the Bible differently. I started to question myself. I started to question the Bible. I started to question God. And I'd always been big into questioning, you know, even when I was traveling around on the charismatic circuit, I was kind of known as um, being a bit of a, uh, a live wire, maybe someone that was a bit edgy to ask to come because I was very, very focused on, well, what, is thing, what does this really say? If we look at it in context, what is really going on? And often would kind of challenge certain elements of charismatic Christianity. Well, I, I took that to the hundredth degree <laughs> after this process. Mm. Um, and, and that's really started um, a new avenue of where I'm coming from, what I'm doing now. And, and over the last probably couple of years, so this is probably then six years, five years after that, now I'm really focused on helping people that are going through a similar process, realizing that the God that they were introduced to, that they maybe were born into, maybe they got saved into, maybe they lived 20, 30, 50 years in that experience, maybe they only lived 10 minutes in it, um, or maybe they, they haven't ex- been exposed to Christianity much at all, but the Christianity they have been exposed to, they don't want anything to do with. Mm. Um, people that are realizing, this just doesn't add up. I'm not sure I want this. Mm. But deeply, on some level, um, no, there is some level of spirituality for them. There is some level of connecting with uh, the divine, whatever that might be. They might not have the language that a Christian has. Maybe they, because they have been Christian, maybe they really don't want to have the language a Christian has because that's got negative connotations. Sure. Um, and so that they, I, I've almost become a pastor to those who hate pastors. Mm. <laughs> Um, which has been a weird experience because I've never, ever uh, desired to be particularly pastoral. Uh, I, I like studying. I like reading. I like diving into uh, books and, and papers and the Bible and, you know, engaging with that. Uh, and, and now I spend probably the majority of my day talking to people online, helping them process with things, talking to pastors that are going through this, all sorts of different um, people are going through it. Um and it's, and it's a really tough journey. It's a lonely journey. It's a scary mm. journey. Uh, it's quite an existential crisis of a journey in a sense, because so much of our uh, identity is wrapped up in what we believe about God and, mm-hmm. and faith. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's really where I find myself today is mostly working with uh, that kind of stuff um, and those kind of people. What, what, um, and what, it's a real approach. Yeah, yeah. Well, what was the... Um... If you could say, I, I know that this journey is is hard. It can be painful. It can be both liberating and devastating at the same time. Um, I've heard it said that uh, great pain and suffering is the only thing that truly liberates the soul. And um, I think we see that archetype in the crucified Christ. Uh, I think that's mm-hmm. what that's all about, is that is the most human way of, of liberation. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, as you went through your dark days and, and your divorce and all that goes along with that and the shame and, and the fa- feelings of failure, what when you came out the other side and you began to question, was there uh, kind of uh, a moment for you that, that began? Was it, I know it was a gradual process. I know that it was a healing and, and probably still are healing. But, but what was the, what was kind of the key for you that said, 
ah, oh, this is this is it. This is what maybe uh, I've been missing in my childhood growing up in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, what made you hold on to your faith? What made you hold on specifically to Christianity and to Jesus? I, I think for me, um, I, I was brought up, I'm a bit of a weird person, so I, I work with thousands of people going through this journey and for 99.9% of them it is painful, it is scary, it is drawn out, it is like intense. And for me, to be honest with you, it was quite intense um, in a sense, but it actually was quite uh, natural in another sense. I was quite used to falling apart or having my beliefs fall apart and rebuild my beliefs because I that was my day-to-day life. I was constantly challenging a belief here or there and trying to reevaluate it. I was just used to doing it in a much smaller box. And so this is just a much broader sense. You know, I wasn't used to going, well, is there even a God? I was used to going, how does the Bible really say about tithing? You know, or something like that, you know? Right. Um, so it was, it was a much broader sense that I was doing it, but in some sense it felt very natural to me. Um, it was very natural for me to question things off faith. Um, and, and so there was some elements of, of, um, of fear, but uh, to be honest with you, it, I think I've always held this, um, this, uh, so my mom uh, passed away a few years ago, but she's a woman of great wisdom. And, and she told me, she says, Phil, ultimately, she says, um, anytime you ask a question of anything, it's only going to result in something good because mm. either it's going to come about that the thing you're questioning is wrong, which is a good thing to find out it's wrong and you can replace it with what's true or start pursuing what's true, or you find out it's true and you have ruled out another argument that doesn't work. You know, it's, it's a scientific method. You question and question until you, you prove your questions aren't. I love to that. That's, that's such a great. Um, that's such a great piece of wisdom. Tell say that again. Anytime you question something, it's only going to end up good. What, what What did she say? Can you re requote so, that? So I don't know if I'm quoting her very well either. But uh, <laughs> anytime you question something, it'll turn out good because if you question mm. something and it's wrong. Mm. Well, you're only in a better position for finding out it's wrong. And you can now start to pursue, well, what is the truth? What, what are, mm. how do I fill in this gap? You know, you chuck away that, that junk and you've suddenly got this, this hole going, oh, this, I can start filling this with something that might be true. And maybe you're going to go through about 20 iterations of it being wrong as well <laughs> before you get there. Um, but, and, and if it's true, the, the beauty of it is that you now have um, good answers, uh, you know, real answers when people come asking the same questions. Uh, and so this is why I say again and again, I cannot fathom, and, and I do fathom, of course, actually, but it's hard to fathom why um, pastors are so, so opposed to questions a lot of the time, uh, especially in kind of more traditional um, uh, modalities of church. Well, um, so, I, I think yeah. I think it's because, uh, and, and I want to throw this back at you, because as much as I love that quote from your mom, um, mm. he, here's the, here's the playing the other side of that. Uh, well, uh, and, and, I'm, and, and I'm sure you've heard this, Phil, truth is truth and it doesn't matter what you, th- you know, wh- how you feel or what you think about it. So questioning absolute truth doesn't change the truth. What would yeah. you say to that? Well, and I would point to my second point, you know, so the, the first point was if it's false, then we can start pursuing what is true. Um, and I agree. Truth. Wow. Wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, that's great that we know it's true. Um, so let's look at it from a few different angles because people will ask this question, whether it's me, might be someone else. So let's look at this question and figure out what does it stand up to the question? How would we answer it in this question? And if we come with a good answer and go, yeah, it's true what we have, then that's great. Now we know we're equipped to answer it. Well, you know, I, I'd even probably throw in a scripture or two for them because, you know, be ready to uh, give an answer, you know, all that kind of stuff. Cause maybe that person would really uh, appreciate some good scriptural grounding mm. for it. Um, but on the flip side, yes, truth is truth, but sometimes we don't have it all. You know, I think mm. any, any well-rounded person uh, and, and 99% of pastors are just decent, really great people uh, that are just, doing what they do. Uh, and, and a good portion of them are very open to questions, but some of them aren't. And, and most of them, uh, they would be still willing to say, well, yeah, sometimes I'm wrong. And so, yes, uh, truth is truth. I don't necessarily have all truth. And so asking that question again is good because maybe I might find a certain area where I go, oh, whoops, I was wrong. And I think anyone looking back over their life will go, yeah, I've been wrong a few times, yeah. <laughs> especially in areas of faith, right? God yeah. speaks to you and you have these wake up moments where you're going, oh, gosh, how did I get this so wrong? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so I think I, I, for those that are, are going to be more absolute um, in, in their uh, engagement with truth, because 
you can approach truth from so many different ways, you know, and, and, and people can be quite dualistic about it, you know, absolute truth. And then people can be quite dualistic about it being, oh, no, truth is relative. And the truth is it's probably a bit of both. Uh, mm-hmm. And it depends very much on on context, on perspective and all these different elements, which you might say maybe that's being relative. Um, but I think any way you cut it, approaching truth with questions is a good thing because you might find out that it doesn't hold up. And even if it does hold up, that you're in a better position now mm. because you, you know more fully of that. You're more convicted of that truth. You're more, uh, you're a, more able to um, share that truth with a more well-rounded answer, with a more well-rounded presentation so that people, yeah. you, you know out there, oh, people always ask me this question yeah, when I, I bring up this point. I, I, so I, love, can, I love to quote uh, it that way. Yeah, I love to quote uh, Richard Rohr's uh, comment about God and truth. And um, and he says that uh, God is both unknowable and infinitely knowable. And I love that mm-hmm. infinitely knowable because what it does is it opens up this idea of truth to be ever-expanding and ever-growing. And uh, it's like a huge diamond that has you know a million facets to it. Um, just about mm. just about the time you think you've seen one side of it, it turns slightly, and there's you know a thousand more beautiful sides to it. Yeah. And so this infinitely knowable divine is one that, um, like you said, is both uh, there is absolute, but there is also um, you know infinitely uh, an infinite amount of knowledge that we will never get mm. to to the end of. And you know, Pete Enns, who I've had on the show recently, oh, he, he wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. Uh, and mm. in that book, he talks about, you know, here, here you have a, 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 such an educated theologian, Harvard-trained, you know, has taught at Princeton. And, you know, this is a man who's gone from, you know, conservative evangelical Christianity to, you know, all over the spectrum – um, but who truly has a love for God and for Jesus. And in that book, he talks about uh, this sin. He calls it the sin of certainty. When we claim to know beyond the shadow of a doubt, this is what's true. This is what mm. the Bible says. This is what the gospel really means. Um, then I think we get ourselves in real trouble because we don't allow ourselves to ever question and grow uh, and yeah. go on a journey, which really is going down the path uh, and not staying where you were uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and that's the beauty of being human. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's um, it's removing the 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 heart of the gospel, the heart of this connection with God, with the divine. And it's replacing it with this cold, hard, calculated intellectual assent. You know what I mean? It's it's this. Oh, I believe X, Y, Z. You know, in some ways, the the Reformation brought incredible um, breakthrough to the church and, and caused us all to grow in incredible ways. But one of the problems that we had was um, we we elevated faith uh, in such a way that faith became a new work. So you know, Luther's point was, you know, it's not about works; it's about faith. But the problem is, he turned faith into a work, and in, in that, it's actually something that you still do. Faith is still a thing you do. You have to believe this thing and say you believe it. And by doing that, you're saved. <laughs> and by doing that, you're a good Christian or whatever, you know, however you interpret Luther's work. Sure. Um, but the point is that he somehow still managed to make faith a, a work. Um, I, I love Paul. Paul uh, uh, talks about this in Ephesians. I think in Ephesians 2.8, he says, you know, we're saved not by, uh, uh, by our works, but through faith. And, uh, and that faith is, uh, is a gift just in case you were thinking or boasting about it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, he breaks it down that this faith, even the ability to believe is, is this gift of this inner Christ consciousness uh, seeking itself. It's not something you did because he knows we're all going to start boasting about it because this is what we do, right? We then look at our spiritual leaders and go, oh, wow, he has the best faith. Maybe he should pray for me mm-hmm. or they have a better faith. Maybe they have an answer to this Bible verse and will tell me what it, it, it means or what it does. But it's all intellectual assent. It's all... Um, you know, I have managed to, to find the right answer, to tick the right box. And then, well, once I found the answer, all that's left to do is just teach it, accept it, and then teach it, and then let other people accept it, and then they can teach it. But it's just a rat race. You know, it's just running around on that wheel. Mm. There's no real um, uh, growth or change. Uh, right. right. And yeah, outside I'm a... of academia, that's very true in the church for the last few hundred years. You know, that's well, we've got a... Stagnant. 
Yeah, we've got a problem here in the States, uh, especially the last three and a half years, where you have um, people who call themselves Christians. And again, uh, that that's that's certainly not a judgmental statement, uh, but who have come to uh, a place where they are attaching their faith to a political party mm. and backing certain candidates that uh, are so far from what Jesus is, he stands for, um, you know, kindness, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, mm. uh, loving the poor, caring caring for the least of these, um, all of the things that, that are the very essence of, of who Jesus was, uh, and yet... Um, at the same time, claiming to be a follower of his, it's a very—it's yeah. a conundrum to me. It blows my mind many times, and sometimes I wake up and I'm like, "Am I in some sort of fairy tale, or am I in a dream? What what reality <laughs> am I even thinking when I see these things come out of people that I've known, uh, friends, family, uh, etc." Who um, yeah. who claim to be followers of Jesus, and this isn't a, a soapbox or let's judge people time. It's just kind of mm-hmm. saying what this is an interesting time we live in, where um, people that you come in contact with, people that I come in contact with, people that I interview, there seems to be rumblings of, hey, maybe what we believe for the past hundred and fifty years uh, needs to evolve. It needs to change. It needs to Maybe we need to relook at uh, the context of this thing we call faith yeah. and Christianity and Scripture. So that this is a segue into, uh, I guess, my first question that I would ask is: as you talk to people, these hundreds of people you talk to online, and as you counsel with, and her, her, her kind of coming out of uh, the church mm-hmm. for for various reasons, um, they're bringing a lot of pain. They're bringing a lot of um, baggage with them. And I know everybody has their own story, but as you, if, yeah. you, if you were to, to write on a whiteboard the top 10 questions and issues that people come with, what would you say is that top one or two that people are struggling with and dealing with? Yeah, um, I, I, man, it, that's a great question. Um, I, on the whole, uh, and this is my experience, and there's an element of um, uh, a bit of a feedback loop because obviously I speak about certain topics, and so people will come to me and, and ask me about those topics. Um, and so for the last couple of years, uh, uh, one of the main focuses I've been working on is helping people reframe the Bible or reinterpret the Bible or look at the Bible differently that allows people to still um, still accept that God is good. You know, so one of the biggest questions I've seen again and again and again, and, and again, I'm working with people that um, if you if you know your kind of spiral dynamics, kind of coming from uh, a stage blue through to kind of orange. Um, so most people are deconstructing or are strong orange, maybe moving even from orange into green. Um, and so that's kind of a, a, the modern postmodern stage. And most of society is at modern moving on into postmodern. So actually, it's the Christians that are moving out of uh, the traditional uh, stage that most of the church is in into where society's at. They're not even, you know, cutting edge or anything like that. They're just kind of catching up with society and asking right. these questions. Because uh, society's asked this question for a long time. But the, the main question I see them asking again and again is, well, how on earth do I reconcile that? It, it says in my New Testament that Jesus, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Jesus is the perfect representation of this invisible being that we call God. So Jesus is good, loving, kind, all these things that you're saying, right? You know, like this is what we know to is a good Christian or whatever. Um, but we flip back a few pages into the Old Testament and there is a, a, a mess, right? <laughs> Didn't know if I was allowed to curse, so I decided against it. Um, you know, it's, it's a real mess um, because yes, God at times is very loving and compassionate and kind and he shows mercy, but all of those quantity, uh, qualities are, are more often than not very limited. There's definitely a, an end to them. And at a certain point, God just decides to open up a can and go absolutely nuts on people. You know, he wipes out entire um, nations. He kills women and children. He gives women uh, as sex slaves for the soldiers that kill all those nations. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of really twisted and weird stuff in there. Um, and anyone that's willing to really dive in and look at it without kind of blinkers on or – and it's not that we – um, intentionally warp the truth as, as more um, 
uh, as, as more traditional or, or again, with spiral dynamics, a blue Christian would do. It's just that we, we, we've not got the worldview and the perspective that allows us to see these things. Mm. You know, So we just don't see it in the text. Mm-hmm. But once you do start seeing it, you go, well, how on earth is God good? But also God looks like, uh, uh, but also God goes, hey, go kill every man, woman and child in this town. Oh, and kill their dogs as well. You know, like, I mean, uh, but wait, 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 keep the young female virgins and divide them up amongst the soldiers. Right, right. Like, whoa, hold on, wait, what? Yeah. Um, so even even the even the cows and dogs were evil enough to be killed, but the young female virgins are somehow absolutely perfect, and there's no way they're going to taint the, the the nation. So you can keep them as the sex slaves. Hmm, that does seem a bit suspect, right? But people asking these questions, going, well, what do I do here? And this is a, a big element for people to to navigate. And I think it's probably one of the main uh, questions people have is, like, I I believe my whole life that God is good. Maybe they go through some great pain or suffering. Um, often some incredible uh, expression or experience of love as well can, can be a, a motivator and a, and, and a catalyst as well, but usually some sort of pain or suffering. And, and it causes them to be more aware of the, the pain and suffering in others. And mm. they open up the Bible and they start to, they don't read as the victorious Israel, they read as the Canaanite that gets wiped out, right? Because all of a sudden you're not the victorious Christian that everything's going right for. You're suddenly this beaten down, uh, you know, life is just treating you like crap. Christian. That's who I am right now. I'm not the victorious Christian. I'm not the one that God's on my side. It seems like God's against me. And so you open up your text and you start to realize, well, there's a lot of victims in here. Mm. Like this good God has a lot of victims that don't seem to have a very good experience. And actually I kind of have some level of empathy for them. Mm, And so you start to go, well, who is this God then? Who Mm. is this God that goes, Oh, Israel like them. Ooh, Canaanites, wipe them all out. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, who is that God? Because I don't see Jesus doing it. You know, I, I do an experiment when I travel. I love to do this, but I get all the audience to close their eyes and I say, all right, imagine with me, you're a, a young Israel male. You've come out of Egypt. You know, your grandparents came out of Egypt and you're going into the promised land. And God says, you're going to have a promised land. You're going to have, you know, fields you didn't even plant, houses you didn't build, amazing cities with fortifications. It's going to be all yours for free. And he sends you into battle and you're nervous and you're scared, but you go in and you just, you take them down bit by bit. They're all falling to your side. Everyone that comes at you, not one of your army is scratched, never mind, you know, killed or anything. And you go into the city and, and you, you get to pick out your new home. You know, you're looking for a nice house, maybe one with a pool, you know, nice, like, you know, three bed for the, you know, the, the kids as well. And you go in, you're looking at you. This is an amazing house. Wow. God is so good. He's giving me this house. And you go upstairs and you go into the back room. And in the back room is a 15 year old girl clutching a toddler to her chest and she's pregnant. Mm. What do you do? Mm. And the, the problem in the room, right, you could hear a pin drop in this room at this point, because we all know the answer, or at least we know the answer that's right, what you should do. And the answer is you should kill them. You should kill mother, child, and unborn child, right, which creates a whole bunch of questions as far as abortion goes, right, because this kid is not evil at this point, uh, this, this unborn fetus, you know. Uh, but... We, might, we, we wrestle with it. We go, you know, oh, well, uh, you know, it's because they're bad nations. God said it must be good somehow. But what I do is I say, well, actually, in that moment, Jesus Christ walks into that room. What does he say? What does he do in that room? Is he sitting there going, yes, kill them, get them, wipe out those sinners, wipe out those terrible people. Make sure you get the child, too. Is that really? Can we on any level see Jesus doing that? And yet. In traditional Christianity, Jesus is God. God is Jesus. That's how we have always seen it. Mm. Um, So it really suddenly draws a line in the sand where it says you clearly have a God that is not like Jesus. Mm. And you really need to come to terms with this. Um, And a lot of people aren't ready to see that. They're not in that worldview. They're not in the place they can see it. In the same way that lots of people are not in a place where they can look at their political ideology and see that they are not necessarily the most Christ-like principles. Yeah. Um, in some ways, maybe they are, and in other ways, maybe they're not. You know, it, it, politics is rarely uh, uh, as dualistic as we like it to be. Um, but but it, you you can be blinded to these things. But once you once you have a moment that kind of awakens you to a, a fresh perspective, you see from this fresh perspective, you see the victims, you see what's going on in the Bible, and you start to question the dynamics going on. You well, definitely question: Is this really God? Yeah, is and I Jesus think that, and I think the 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 way that at least I was brought up dealing with those hard questions it was the 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 pat answer always was 
oh, well, that's Old Testament and the Old Covenant. Now we're <laughs> under a new covenant, and when Jesus died on the cross, he changed things because his blood was a perfect sacrifice, so therefore God does not interact with human beings the same way. That, that, right. that, that's the easy way to deal with that. Um, and and where, depending on where you're at, that's a really ah answer, isn't it? You know, you, you go, yeah, okay, I can accept that, and that makes me feel better. Um, but then depending on where you're at as well, you might look at that answer afresh and go, wait, but God doesn't change. So, yeah, the circumstances have changed, but God, that God is still the God that wiped out people right? and was pleased to do so. Right. Like, so, yeah, he doesn't deal with me that way right now. <laughs> but even, even if, you know, even if he never will again, I'm still kind of spending eternity with this God. And who is that God? Like, well, he has it. Jesus if you really context would do that, yeah. And if you really believe in your, um, you know, the problem that so many people have is not the Old Testament Jesus uh, as much, because I think a modern people who think through this can say, you know what, maybe an ancient Middle Eastern society thousands of years ago attributed things to God because. That was their culture, and that was the way that they engaged. And their their war their warring, competing cultures did the same thing. Our God's better than your God, and if we win a war, God's on our side, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think we've changed much, but I think I think we can probably sort through that. Now, I think we're a lot of modern Christians are struggling and have come to the point of okay. If 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 that's the God of the Old Testament, but now we understand maybe maybe they had it wrong. Maybe they were uh, ascribing to God things that weren't really God. And Jesus came to show us what God is really like. Here's the problem, though. As soon as I believe that God, you can preach God is loving, He's kind. But the moment I close my eyes and I die. He then turns back into that Old Testament God, <laughs> and he is ready to throw me yep. into an eter- conscious etern- eternal torture chamber where he burns me with fire, and I never burn up, and I suffer for all eternity. Yeah. That's what people are having a hard time with, right? Yeah. And, and you know what? If you ask me to give you more than one uh, question, that's probably number two or three, mm. is, is people coming to me going, like, what is the deal with hell? Like, what? <laughs> like this just does not seem to add up. This just does not seem to, I, I can't get my head around a God who is loving, whose mercy is without end. And yet his mercy ends. And then he stops loving you <laughs> or loving you looks like just brutally torturing you for all eternity. And so uh, I don't know if you've had a guest on that's spoken about hell in any depth. Uh, uh, Brad Jerzak has. Perfect. I mean, Brad Jerzak my favorite person on this stuff. I mean, his book is amazing. And so if someone hasn't listened to the, that podcast, they should go back and listen to that or, or pick his book up. Um, Her gates will never be shut. It's fantastic. Right. Mm-hmm. But ultimately I think this boils down to our, our, our understanding of justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so justice really can be worked out in two different ways. You can, you can have a justice that is punitive or a justice that is restorative. And um, again, Christianity and, and institutions of religion tend to lag a little bit behind the uh, more secular areas in society um, because most of secular society has woken up to the fact that restorative justice works way better than, sec- uh, than, uh, than punitive justice. Mm. Now, you being in America, uh, you guys are less uh, motivated by what is right um, as much as what makes money. Um, so right, your systems right. are extremely punitive still, your, your prison systems and, and your legal systems for sure. And, and I do believe that will change in time and over X amount of years. Who knows how long, uh, you know, we'll see. Um, but throughout Europe, more and more um, systems, ju- judicial systems are trying to uh, roll out restorative measures as mm. far as how they operate their prisons and their their um, their justice systems. And, and what they found is that for every, so in the UK they did a study and they found that for every pound, we'll say dollar because it's easier for you guys, for, for every dollar spent on restorative measures, they save $8 in reoffending. $8. Mm. Um, so that's a pretty good investment. Um, and what they're finding is when you, when you, when your form of justice involves healing people, fi- figuring out why did this person do this crime? What has gone on in this person's life? 
Why are they here? How can we help them? How can we deal with the psychological trauma, the emotional trauma, whatever it is that we can work with? How can we bring restoration between them and their victims? Um, maybe they've been victimized. Maybe we can work with that to some degree. When you start working with that, what you find is when people go out, they don't want to mm. commit any form of crime. And not most people don't want to do crime anyway, but they're not inclined to do crime either. Um, and so actually, uh, again and again and again, I think reoffend rates in Norway since instituting um, widespread re uh, restorative uh, justice programs in the prisons that run them, the reoffend rates are about 14%. I think in America, they're, I don't remember the exact number, but it's over 80%. Mm. Um, so you're talking, and of course, there's way more to it than that one metric as well. So, you know, please don't um, run around with that statistic as if it's entirely meaningful just that one uh, thread you know i've done a whole bunch of study in a whole bunch of different areas to make sure that there's not just you know a, a simple correlation uh, uh there you know or causation or whatever um but the point being that the world has come to the conclusion that restorative justice simply works better than punitive justice it's simple even in childcare, raising your kids it works better to incentivize to teach people to help them to show them the, the way to go rather than to punish children constantly it, we just know that now again and again and again you know you might have certain people argue about it but on the whole they're they're a dying breed um, people know that this is a better model of motivation of helping people and so what's fascinating to me is the world has looked at these two models when someone does something wrong, we punish them versus when someone does something wrong, we heal them. And they've decided across the boards that when someone does something wrong, healing them is a better model. What's fascinating to me is Christianity looks at those two options and cannot conceive that God would pick the one that works better. Mm. <laughs> um, they still are holding on to a punitive God because punitive uh, measures of justice have been our worldview for millennia. Mm -hmm. um, and when the church is lagging behind in the way that they are, they're still working in systems of belief that are punitive. And so how is punitive? You know, you've done something wrong. You need to be punished for it. Mm. Um, but there are there are definitely plenty of scriptures. There's plenty of precedent throughout church uh, history, throughout um, theological uh, studies throughout the history of uh, the church. There's plenty of precedent for restorative justice. And what's mm. interesting is throughout the scriptures in New and Old Testament, there are restorative uh, justice passages throughout and restorative models. You can look at Jesus, and he's very restorative. And many of his passages we use punitively to argue for punitive justice can equally be read restoratively, but you just have to have a lens to see it, which, again, is very hard to see. You can't see things until you kind of opened your eyes to uh, to that, that perspective and that, that worldview. Um, but I think that's a huge element, because once you start realizing that, that there is an option for God to bring healing and restoration, um, hell becomes something that's not a threat and it's not a punishment. Rather, it's a process of being healed. Anyone that's done something wrong, you know, any of those people in prison uh, going through a restorative process, they wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't sign up for this process. It's still painful. It's still hard to deal with your pain, to face sure. your hurts head sure. on, you know, to look at the people you victimized and, and to say sorry, um, to look at the people that have victimized you and process that and deal with that and forgive them. All that stuff is painful. It's awful. You know, it's, it's going through a refining fire. It is painful. But what's left is just the precious jewels, the, the gold, the silver, all that other stuff burns away and, and is, is gone. Um, and I think that for me is a much more beautiful and much more um, eternally merciful and eternally loving model of what the afterlife might look like. Um, and of course, we don't know what the afterlife looks like. And right. church, church history doesn't know. You know, it's divided right, right back from the very earliest church fathers. They were divided on this topic and, and had different perspectives. Um, and you'll hear people go, no, 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 they were all universalistic. Or, oh, no, 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 they were all, you know, eternal conscious torment. And other people say, no, 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 they're all annihilationists. And the simple fact is, Anyone that says that hasn't done enough reading in the church history because there's plenty of uh, examples of all three of those models being um, spoken about throughout church history. And there's a good argument that most of the people in the New Testament had different views on this as well. And some of them maybe even changed their views uh, on this. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. I, think I mean, for the first for, for the first 500 for, years, uh, a majority of the church were universalist, right? Certainly, um, a majority of the the it's, it's hard to say because we, we only have the writings we have, right. and that's a big factor. Um, and on, honestly, we don't really know a lot of uh, 
the inner workings of a lot of different elements of the church in the first 500 years as well. You know, so it's, it's one of those things of we only hear from uh, from the men what Jesus' right. ministry was. Right. You know, we don't. But that it, but reading between the lines, women were everywhere and they were financing it and they were all over the place. You know, but again, whose gospels do we have? We've got these four and they're all by men and they're all written with a, a male gaze, a male perspective. And, and this is probably this, to some degree the same for the early church. You know, with um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we discovered a whole treasure trove of new writings and things like that. But on the whole, we don't know much um, outside of what we do know. And that's just the way it works, isn't it? You only know what you know. Right. Um, but certainly uh, based on that, and so this is me being very uh, gray area, I'm very slow to give absolutes, but from what we do know, a good majority certainly had universalistic or ultimate reconciliation tendencies, um, but certainly not all, definitely not all. There was definitely a conversation sure, going on. Sure, there was a conversation for sure, and 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 that's that's the beauty of it, and that's the point. Mm-hmm. The point is not what they believe, so therefore that must be true. The point is there was a freedom in discussion and there was not um, there was not this atmosphere that says you are heretics and we are right. Um, there was this open discussion that yes, they may have disagreed and may have violently disagreed, but mm-hmm. there was no exclusion or one group hijacking the whole faith and saying this is the yep. absolute truth. And that's where I think you know, for the most part, Protestant evangelicalism has lived the past 7,500 years is they've said, this is the absolute truth. And if you believe anything outside of this, yeah. then you're a heretic or you don't truly believe, et cetera. So let's move on from that. There's two mm-hmm. questions that I that I want to, to, to squeeze into this hour, and hopefully we can get to them both. Um Sure. Sorry, I'm a big rambler. Oh so no, not a problem. Points, so. <laughs> no, not a problem. Uh, the the first question I have um, is very. Uh, it has to do with the people that you talk to, that you counsel, um, and then the second one is a theological question. So let's start with the personal human one. Um, sure. I find, and I have had several people, and I think part of the struggle and the pain. Of of reexamining and re um, and growing on your journey of of coming out of and toward a different type of understanding of faith than where you've been, is this idea and concept of those that do have this certainty and a true belief, heartfelt belief that they are right, and for those people who have said, well, you know what, I don't believe that anymore. Um, I've come to a different conclusion at this point in my journey, and I'm choosing to believe and to walk in a faith that that might be very different. There is this uh, not uh, not a I I consider it worse than exclusion and worse than being called a heretic. It's this mm-hmm. posture that says, "Oh, you faked it the whole time. You never believed because if you really believed, then you wouldn't have left us. And they use that scripture that says, you know, they went out from us because they were never of mm-hmm. us. Um, how do you how do you reconcile that? I mean, how do you counsel people in that? Because that can be extremely painful because it's it's it says less about the person who's going through that. It actually says more about the people who are accusing them because they really believe that a person can't wake up and have an awakening and actually grow beyond that. They believe, they look at that very dualistically and say, oh, they faked it the whole time. And you have pastors who are doing this. You have people in the media recently. And what you get is these leaders standing up and making accusations of saying, well, you weren't really, you never believed it. You were living a lie the whole time. How do you, how, do you have people that come to you with that and are struggling with that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a very common occurrence for sure. And um, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. At the end of the day, it says much more about the person saying it than the person that's being said to. Um, and, and I think it was, um, uh, I think it was um, the right of the Shek, uh, William Paul Young. Uh, he said, I remember watching an interview with him and, and people said, how do you cope with all of this stuff? You know, I mean, every two minutes there's a new evangelical review about how you're Satan, you know? Right. Um, and he was like, oh, he's like, that would have hurt me years ago. He's like, but now I just see that's commentary on their pain, their suffering, their inability to cope with these things. And he's like, it's, it's not actually about me. It's only about them. They're just writing a blog about their issue. 
Um, and I was like, wow. And, 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 you know, I'm sure he would be quick to say, and I, I certainly would be quick to say as well, it's not that we suddenly just off put everything on someone else. Because sometimes people give us good feedback and, hey, you've got some crap in your life you should deal with, you know? Um, so, you know, it's not you just go, oh, that's your issue. That speaks about you. But I, 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 certainly anything that we say about anyone else is first and foremost about us. It's about our judgments. It's about our uh, perceived um, understanding of something or someone. Um, and I think, again, this goes back to um, an element of spiral dynamics of psychological development, you know, where um, there are people that are uh, earlier stages. So traditional blue stage needs security, it needs stability, it needs certainty. Um, and, and usually it puts these in um, a pope, a Bible, a pastor, um, an authoritarian patriarchal god, you know, someone that's at the top dishing out answers and solutions and stability, uh, safety, all these things. Um, and so the, the next stage after that is the modern stage, orange, which starts to look at questions. It starts to ask questions. It starts to um, be more rational, quote unquote. I'm not saying other people are completely irrational, but it's, it's got a more rational desire and drive. I want things to add up. I want things to mm. make sense. Um, that's, that sort of thing is very, very, very dangerous to a culture that requires stability and safety. And so actually, when, you, when you're at a psychological developmental stage where you need safety and security, the number one thing you want is a, a traditional, um, conservative, evangelical, you know, Baptist, whatever church. Um, actually, they did studies on this. Um, they did studies on prison inmates. And uh, they, they did studies on different Christian groups that go into the prisons. And did you know that um, churches that are at a blue stage, uh, a traditional stage, well, most people in prison are at warrior stage, the prior stage, red. And blue churches did really, really well. So most prison ministries you know of are going to be at the stage blue, a traditional stage. And that's exactly what people in a turmoil, um, you know, full mm. of like uh, mm. me, 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 I, I, you know, I want that. I hit you over the head. I take it kind of mentality. I'm not saying everyone in prison has that mentality, of course, but um, generalization, broad strokes um, did really well with blue. But the next stage, orange, which is maybe where most deconstruction, uh, you know, there's a bit of overlap. Blue orange is most of the church in, in, in the West in America. Um, and orange green is probably where most people are de deconstructing the modern slash postmodern stage. You put a modern slash postmodern person in a prison, they almost have no effect. Mm. Now, they might have effect in changing reform, you know, making sure different uh, policies are put in place, you know, financing that, pushing for that. They might have real effects there, but getting people, quote unquote, saved and into their church rarely happens. And it's because people, they, they move along the stages at a natural pace. And so people in a prison want safety, security, certainty, um, you know, to know these things. And that's a good thing. And so actually, we can be very, very quick to demonize another stage. And so I say this because those people at blue will demonize people at orange. You know, the, the people in the traditional level will demonize the modern level. Because, well, you're just asking questions. You're being relativistic. You don't believe in anything, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and they're right in a sense. Uh, that is terrifying. That is dangerous. That is going to bring everything down as far as they understand it. And if they're not ready to move on, you're probably best just going, okay, I'm really sorry that that's where you're at. This is where I'm at. Let's just agree to disagree and maybe just not bring this up. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's talk about some other topic where we're both a lot more compatible and a lot more able to have a good, healthy conversation. Yeah, that's but good. The danger is that we, I say we loosely, but I'm assuming most people listen to your podcast are probably in this modern slash postmodern stage. The danger is we look back on that, uh, that traditional stage and we demonize that. That's right. So we look at it and go, oh, these idiots, look, they don't care about questions. They don't care about truth. All they care about is being blind and just accepting what they've been told. You know, they're just sheep following, you know, off, walking off a cliff like lemons. Or, you know, we, we, I'm using very extreme language, but I've heard this kind of language again and again, and I have been that person for sure. Um, generally speaking, this is when you first start your de deconstruction, because when you move from one stage to the next, you usually demonize what you were. You, you feel angry. You feel betrayed. You feel you've wasted your time, your years. Right, you know, right. There's a lot of emotion in it. Mm. But the danger is we actually forget that that's a very important stage. Yeah, it was and, important for us and, and in our journey. And, and, I don't wanna, and I don't want to trade one form of fundamentalism for another. Um, yeah, because you have very dangerous. Yeah, because what you've done is you've you haven't really grown and matured. You've just switched your allegiance and your tendency towards certainty 
from one one yeah. one 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 extreme to the other, and you're basically, the, you know, this is the problem we have in America, right? We have the right mm-hmm. and the left screaming at each other, and they're both doing. They're basically mirror images of each other, doing the exact same thing. You're wrong, and you're an idiot, and you're evil. You're wrong, and you're an idiot, and you're evil. And it's yeah. just, it's ridiculous. There, there's, there's just no. There's no center ground. There's no understanding. There's no civil yeah. discourse to come to uh, a creative new solution. There's just mm. the, there's just people and the media fanning start with screaming rather than start with discussion. Um, yeah. So okay, let's move off of that then, and <laughs> I'm going to leave you with the biggest question. But you only have five minutes. Okay, you ready? Okay, right. I'm on it. I'm looking at the clock. So. All right. <laughs> Did God? require the blood of Jesus on the cross in order to forgive sins? No. All right. We good? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to let you off that easy. Uh, I thought I'd try. Uh, No. So this is a great question. And it it all stems into like Hebrews, which talks about the the blood of um, uh, without the shedding of blood blood of Jesus. Mm, Right. Um, to be honest with you, I cannot go into that in, in the time frame we have, but like actually Brad Jerzak, mm-hmm. um, who mentioned earlier, has an amazing article on this. If you type in Brad Jerzak um, without the shedding of blood into Google, it'll be the first result. Um, mm-hmm. Brilliant article. It goes into quite a bit of depth. I've got a, a smaller article on it as well on my website, um, phildrives.com. It was quite recent, so you can find it on that. But ultimately, this is what it boils down to. It, it, it's an understanding of punitive justice. It's, it's we, we cannot see a God who does not shed blood to bring things about and to make things right. You know, it's a punitive model of justice again. Mm-hmm. Like we can't conceive. It's fascinating to me, this God who can do whatever he wants because he's God, right? I mean, it's all power he's all whatever but he couldn't possibly have created a world where if someone screwed up he would just choose to forgive them mm. he had he had to make a mechanism because if we've got we, we almost act like god's hands are tied but if god requires to make things bleed to forgive something well he designed it that way he came up with that model mm-hmm. it's not his hands were tied he literally designed it from scratch which really makes it a bit bizarre and weird mm-hmm. um and and ultimately do we see jesus at any point requiring any form of punitive uh, measure when people come to him forgiveness. Never, never mm. does he do that. He always offers forgiveness without any condition. Mm. Um, he enables people to do things differently potentially afterwards, but the forgiveness is offered without a condition. And throughout the, the scriptures in the New Testament, the forgiveness is offered without condition. Um, now, yes, blood is involved. Yes, Jesus' death is involved, but Jesus did not come to enable God to forgive us. Jesus came as a demonstration mm. of God have forgiveness. Mm. And so when Jesus got to here, God had already never had an issue with humanity. The issue is not that God had turned his back on humanity, that God was running away from humanity. The issue from day one was that humanity walked away from God. You know, that, that beautiful um, story at the beginning of Genesis, Adam and Eve, uh, quote unquote, sinned. They disobeyed God. They did what was wrong, whatever that is, you know, uh, whether you look at that poetically or literally, there's different ways to look at it. But whatever they did, their response is the key. They were the ones that hid from God. Mm. God came seeking them. And even if you look at them being kicked out of the garden, it was never a punitive thing. It was, I'm taking you out of here in case this situation is permanent. Mm. And what's interesting, he doesn't stay in the garden. You know, he's not got his, like, you know, lounger out in the garden just enjoying the sun while Adam and Eve go out into the desert. No, he goes out of the garden with Adam and Eve. The very next passage talks about him being with Adam and Eve's kids. Mm. Um, So God is never turning his back on us. He's never running away from us. It's us who run away from God. And so Jesus is God's ultimate message you know we throughout the old testament we see people turning their back on god walking away because they feel unworthy right. and god constantly pursuing them saying please do not be afraid do not walk away do not run away i am here i'm with you i'm for you i love you um, and jesus is the ultimate message of that and the cross is the ultimate demonstration of that and, and it does make a way for people to realize they have been reconciled with god mm. um so that'd be my very short uh very uh, truncated answer. Uh, <laughs> I can't give any answers in less than like four hours. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Yeah, no, so, uh, so Phil, Brad Jersak's article on that is very good. If you want to look at that particular Bible passage and break it apart and open it up, it's really great. Awesome. Well, Phil, how, how do people get a hold of you? How, what is your website? Your Instagram? Your how would you like people to 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 see your work? 
So there's a few different ways to get hold of me. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to chat with me, Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. I love it. Um, it's just much easier. The messages are truncated. You're not allowed to send too long a message. It's perfect. Um, don't email me. I'll read it. I'll probably never reply because I get so many emails. Um, but yeah, Instagram is a great way to connect with me. I'm much more active on there. And if you want to read my articles, that's on phildrysdale.com. If you want to watch any of my videos, um, you can watch all of my stuff. Everything I do is for free. So all my stuff is on the great course.com um, and there's plenty of videos on there about hell homosexuality the bible you know is god really good all that kind of stuff as well so if people want to dive in a bit deeper in, uh, into some of these topics that's a great place to go and have a podcast and all sorts you just google my name you'll, you'll find uh you'll find stuff for sure um, well phil yeah. phil thank you for for spending an hour um i know that that your time is precious but i appreciate it i, I just want to say i always end um the podcast with trying to encourage because I know that that you give and give and give, but I want to just say that I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, thank you for for asking these questions, um, and thank you for loving people well that are going through this journey because um, it can be uh, extremely painful. Uh, but uh, you are doing a work that is very very uh, needful, uh, very rewarding, and very healing for people. So. So thank you for that, and keep doing it. And uh, uh, we will keep uh, following you on Instagram and, and and watching all the great stuff you do. Do you have anything new coming out? Um, so I'm actually about to release a, a, a whole series on spiral dynamics, so psychological development and how it affects faith uh, specifically, which should be very interesting. So That's awesome. I'm looking forward to that. But thank you so much. I really I, I appreciate I, I really appreciate your encouragement, and your kind words, and. Um, I just love what I do. And so, yeah, if there's people out there that want to talk to someone and process with someone, you miss having a, a pastor to talk to. Uh, I'd love to chat with you. I'm not a very good pastor, but I'm, I'm, I'm an ear to hear. And, um, and yeah, I'm happy to process along with you. And so, yeah, it was, it's a real privilege. Thank you so much for what you do. Uh, you know, incredible work to, to help people in this process. And so thank you. Thank you, Phil. And uh, we'll talk to you really soon. All right. Bless you, my friend. Bye-bye.